Welcome to the Inspiring Leadership podcast series. This is aimed for you aspiring leaders, whatever level you're at, whether you're beginning out in your careers as managers and leaders, whether you're in middle ranking roles, or whether you're CEOs and chairman of boards, there's always something we can all learn. And it's particularly the skills, stories, tips and techniques that you can pass on to those you lead and your teams. Hello, I'm Jonathan Bowman Perks and welcome back to my favorite time of the week. And I'm very fortunate to have a good old friend of mine, General Tim Evans. And we're gonna be talking about Tim's experience and uh, inspiring leaders. So Tim, um, just give us a little capsule of, of career and where you're, where you're now. So I was in the military for 34 years and I've been retired now for three years. And it started when I was back at 17. So I left public school and they had that no type engagement where the army says you'll be a soldier for six months on a gentleman's agreement that if you don't pass your officer exams or, or RCB, uh, you don't, they don't keep you in the military. Mm -hmm. But for me, a fascinating insight. So from public school into a Nissan hut in Shrewsbury with 30 lads from the north and I there speaking with five plums in my mouth and they wondered who I was. But actually, I learned very quickly that they might not have qualifications but they are streetwise. Mm. They know who bluffs, who doesn't. You earn their respect. And also I learned there the power of the junior NCO, the corporal, which sometimes as you go up the ranks, you might forget. But literally then, how high I would jump, whatever they said, in the sense of the power they hold, but the camaraderie they built. So that was a very good learning. That was yeah. 17. Yeah. And then really, when I came back to battalion as a second lieutenant, I think again, a formative moment was when my first operation in Belfast. And that gave me the flavor of what operations meant the camaraderie, mission first, how everyone's orientated to the purpose. And I think really that sowed the seed almost for my career, which I thought maybe, maybe in time, I might try for special forces, mm. which I did later, didn't get through the first time, second, but that would put me then to Hereford or to, to SES and on. And then from that, it was a probably a trajectory that took me through command and operational and training jobs, which I think for myself is why I stayed in so long, because mm. every day was different. Mm. Every day was a challenge, and it's just something that I felt invigorated. It's a vocation, it really is. Yeah. Um, and therefore, it took me through to battalion, to brigade, to a corps, um, and then eventually I had to, I had to leave. Yeah. But, I, but I had a fascinating time. Well, um, I, th I think of various people that I've spoken to, and, and they all, like me, probably think of you as one of the most inspiring, but also yet the, the most modest about what you've achieved. You know, you're also the, the commander of the ARC, the Allied Rapid Reaction Corps. Uh, and also Commandant of Santos, and we can talk more about that in the in the second extra session after this. But um, when you look back over your career, there must have been people who were quite role models to you and who inspired you. And who, who would you perhaps, a couple of people you'd pick out? I was thinking about that, and uh, if I said four, mm -hmm. my father for one, yeah. and even just as a child, he gave me the uh, ability to spread my wings. We weren't boxed in. So that's great. So I learned about freedom and trust. Then I, even at school, as my housemaster, Julian Buick, who I'm still a friend with now, he kind of mentored me even at 14. As small as I am, uh, I could either be D, D crew row or I'd be the first eight Cox. And so he took me out and I read some of the old books that Cox has hit the bank again. And so I don't know how they had as a young fortune or why they put up with me. But I then was dealing with the 18-year-olds of the school and I learned a lot mm. just of how it works. And he almost shepherded me through that. And I think it meant that I was then 
in his sense, under his wing, yeah. and learned so much. So that was at school and putting me uh, then to forces. And then when I was ADC to General de la Bellier, oh, yeah. the most decorated general, special forces, again, very humble. He could, though, talk to the Queen, or he could very comfortable talking to a soldier. He almost espoused mission command, delegate, but he kept his finger on the pulse. Yeah. But he would trust you. Yeah. So again, I learned some good lessons there about you don't have to be all over it. Let them have their way. But just trust that it's enough. And are you satisfied? If you are, let them go. It's even with some mistakes, because mm. then they'll rise, the confidence grows, and suddenly the team is doing more than you would expect because you let them have their leash. I thought, yeah. wow. And then the last one I'll say is probably uh, General Sir Richard Shereff on, he was my divisional commander in Basra, and I might mention that later, one of the harder tours I've done, uh, where, again, strength personality, protected, I knew he had my back. He was up and out. I was down and in with the brigade, and it was resolute. Where people might doubt, or people might try and of course, he knew what, in a sense, was good for his soldiers, and he was true. And I thought, again, I learned some good lessons off um, Sir Richard about how it works in operations. Yeah. So no one person, but choose. As you go through life, you look and see and think there's almost traits or areas where you think, gosh, that is quite special. Yeah. Um, and then perhaps just draw. But I don't think you should change, because I think you are inherently who you are. Yeah. But I think you can learn. Yeah. And therefore you colour. So don't be, I would advocate in leadership, don't try and be someone else. No. Be yourself. And as Slim said, leadership is playing you. But I think you can learn and shape yourselves as to how you might want to do it for the future by looking around you and see where people are. That's, that's very wise. And, and someone said to me, um, everybody you meet has something to teach you. If only you would listen. Oh. And, um, and sometimes it's learning about how not to be. I won't be like that guy yep. uh, or that woman. Um, but I, I think like you, I, I suppose particularly with losing my father, I was looking for male role models and, and learning from them, but still trying to be myself. And when I acted and tried to be them, it no. never worked, no. never worked. No. And, and people see through it. Yeah. Because yeah. you can't keep a facade up. No. And therefore don't. No. And I think for youngsters, and particularly at Santos, is, and we've said it, that Santos is common at Santos, be yourself, but do learn because of certain traits you might want to shape, because it yeah. might not be about self. And I think for me, and you'll, we'll talk about this later, mission, team, self. And I think the biggest thing from Santos and others is just making sure today's society is turning that about so therefore they understand that it's not about them. Mission, team, self, funny old thing, it works. Hmm. Stronger for the team and you yourself are better off for it because yeah. the team's there. Yeah. So it's not a difficult recipe, but I think it's just a, that someone's got to understand what it is. Yeah. And that way then it makes life so much easier yeah. because it's focused. Now, you can't always do that and therefore something's come at a price because... If you're mission focused, something's got to give. Yeah, um, we'll, we'll, talk, we'll talk about yeah. that further later. And um, you've had lots of experiences, great successes, but also you must have learned as a leader uh, from your mistakes. What would, what would be what, what would be one of your learnings from your mistakes, and how's that shaped the leader you are today? A couple of things I think. If, if there's a trait, I think sometimes trust your gut instincts. And if something doesn't quite smell right, or you get a feeling, follow it through. Whereas sometimes you perhaps don't wishful thinking, or perhaps it will get better. And bad news doesn't get better with time. And I've learned almost to my expense of yeah. why didn't I grip it earlier? I kind of knew it. And we all know that anything that I should have done. Yeah. It just nips something and you can curl, take it down. Whereas when it's got big and bigger, you think, oh, yeah. and that's back to you. And you almost think, is that your own leadership? Perhaps you should have been stronger or yes. more fruitful or Very don't true. hear other things. Very so true. for me as a trade, I think almost act on your gut or even if it's not gut, if it doesn't smell right, it's not right, get into it. 
Okay. The other side, just more personal, I think, when I was a battalion commander, we had a training accident, a guy died, a uh, very good um, person. And then obviously we're all the investigation going through and the people who had to be investigated just to check what it was and they were exonerated. Personally, I don't think I gave as much support as I could or should have done. And to this day, if I had rerun that, I would have done. Yeah. Because I think I probably hadn't quite appreciated what the pressure it is when something like that is over your head, even though uh, there was no answer, as sad as it was. Um, I probably didn't respect the fact that what it is, and as a commander, that's yeah. my responsibility. Yeah. And uh, so I wish I had. Yeah, so, no, been more sportive. Wise, wise words. Uh, and Tim, finally, what would be your top tip? I mean, we're going to give some more tips later on, but what would be your top tip uh, to, to leaders who are listening about being a, a more inspiring leader, whatever level they're at? Can I have two? You can have two. And you, everyone will almost say what these are. The first one is uh, lead by example. Life is so much easier if you set the bar and set it high because then you can always bring it down. But if you set a low bar, everyone judges you on that bar. Yeah. Very hard to bring it up. Yeah. But if you set the bar fairly high and try and live through it, both in your business, personal life and others, then people will follow you. You can be quite robust. Mm. You can be quite hard. But then you're consistent, you're fair, and that's your standard. Yeah, that's very good. And therefore, if you're doing it, they have to follow. Yeah. If you're not doing it, how can you look someone in the eye and say, yeah, true. Uh, I want this? And they're looking at you thinking, yeah, but you don't follow that creed. Yeah. So my first one would be lead by example. Second? The second one is don't expect anyone else to do anything that you wouldn't do yourself. Yeah. But we all know in the forces you can't do everything. You can't be the best sniper on the other side. But the soldiers or NCOs know that you would do it yeah. or could do it if you had to. Yeah. They will do extraordinary things with that because they're not out on a limb. They don't think they're being abused. They don't think they're just part. Perfect. Uh, and I think for, if you do those two things, uh, life is a little bit easier because if you do that, then the team comes together. Brilliant. Tim, thank you. No, it's, it's been pleasure. fantastic spending time with you. Really appreciate that. And I know everyone will value your advice and your experience. Thank you. Pleasure. Hello, I'm Jonathan Bowman-Perks and welcome back to the Inspiring Leadership Extra series. And I'm very lucky to have my good friend, General Tim Evans. And uh, we're carrying on the earlier conversation that we had. Uh, Tim, I think uh, what would be really interesting to the listeners would be your career. You, you mentioned you know, 17 years old and you were there on the, what they call the O-type engagement where you, you to become an officer, you had to go and spend time with the soldiers, which was a baptism of fire. And some didn't ever make it through. They just were too raw. Um, but it was the making of you in some ways, wasn't it? Do you want to talk about that? Yeah, I think what it showed me is what it is to be a soldier, what you're about to walk into. And either then does that in, uh, invigorate you or think that's not for me? Because for me, obviously, I've enjoyed it. I've been there 34 years, so it did suit. But I can quite understand why it might not suit others. So this at 17, 18, either it shapes you, but I'm an ex-military because my father's military, so I kind of knew a little it? bit about it. But what, was, not... what was father's regiment? What yeah, so he was RCT. Okay. Uh, yeah. He got to full, full colonel. Yeah. Uh, and therefore, I felt when I moved, uh, went in, I wouldn't want to be in the same regiment because I didn't want to be under my father's shadow. Yeah. But conversely, I also wanted uh, to move out and branch on my own. Yeah. So I went infantry as, yeah. as, as it yeah. went. And you were at public school before that. Where, where was that? So that was at Monkton Coombe, Monkton okay. Coombe Junior. Okay. And senior down in Bath. Yeah. Um, and then, as I say, came out when I was late 17 uh, and first went for their 
six months of the ranks, and that was in a sense a forward moment. Were and you ready for that? Did you know what was coming? No, oh, I was a bit behind <laughs> the ears, uh, and it was a shock actually. Uh, it really was. Yeah. But because we had a corporal who was almost your nickname, Mister Nasty, but the fact <laughs> is he he was very good. Yeah. He knew in order to make sure that we didn't start worrying about everything other things, he was quite harsh, get us in line. But therefore the whole team bonded because we knew we had set standards, he had set the bar high, and therefore we all coalesced mm. because we had to get the respect of the corporal to get the standards up because we were civvies. And now we're now into military going and, through. And how can we apply that learning to you know, teams in business today. I mean, you're now in business and you're working in Saudi, but yeah. how can you apply that to teams today? Well, I think what was clear there is he was very clear about his intent, what he wanted, what we were standards we were supposed to meet, the timeline that required and the work required to do so, and the fact that if you didn't work as a team, you weren't going to get to those standards, you weren't going to meet those timelines. So it forced us to start thinking, almost back to what I said in the podcast, less about ourselves and the team mentality. And therefore, what was best for the section? What yeah. was best for the platoon? So even from those early age and early uh, early days, you started thinking that it was less about yourself, even though you were really worried about yourself and about how are you gonna survive this? Because there were bigger things to worry about and that was the objective of the platoon, but him particularly, it was his section. How do we get the section going? So he got then a bit of competition going between the other sections. Yeah. So therefore, we were then proud to be his section because when we started gaining and leading a little bit, we felt good. Therefore, you could then understand why he was trying to put this across. So I don't know it whether it lead, led the seeds of make it competitive but not toxic, make it sure you understood what the intent was, what the object was, and how you're going to achieve it, yeah. and then almost get after it. Yeah. Because you know in business, but also it's taking the opportunities. And if you don't take the opportunities, then you'll stay small. Yeah. If you take the opportunities and then you're working out, and this is about a level of risk, and it's something I've seen throughout my career, everyone is slightly difficult, different with risk. Hmm. Someone is a risk taker, yeah. maybe even to get to a gamble. I'd say risk is you know, it's calculated, gamble perhaps isn't. Hmm. Others aren't comfortable. And I think, therefore, as a commander or a leader, you've got to gauge and know your people. And you give them enough rope. And I don't mean to hang myself, but that's the expression, isn't it? You give them enough rope in order to move out. But there's different lengths of rope. Yeah. Because when you do, and we call it mission command, so you tell the effect you want to achieve, but you don't tell them how to do it. Otherwise, you're stifling their initiative. But you don't give everyone the same level. Hmm. There are some people, you're a, a tighter leash until yeah. they got the confidence. Yeah. And are they now have the ability? And yes. maybe over time, they have more. But also, I would say, you don't abrogate your responsibility. So with mission command or giving you, it doesn't mean you just step back and say, right, I'm, I'm off. No, no, you're over, oversight, mentoring, but you're not imposing too much. No, let them have the freedom. And if you give them have the freedom to do so, they suddenly think, well, I now feel, because a lot of us, you're as confident as you feel, but sometimes you're less confident than actually what your ability says you can do. Yeah. So if you can just break the confidence barrier, and I think that's by having a mentor, yeah. but also the other aspect is training. Training emboldens. And if you get the training going well, and you then almost give the people the tools to do so, again, they're, they're off. Yeah. And th this is where I think in, in business, it's so sad that there's so little money and time invested in people's training yep. and development. And, uh, you know, I reckon in the army, I don't know, they must have invested over my 20 years that I was in 
£250,000 in my development, you know, all sorts of different things, a lot of training. Um, in business, if, if, if there's £25,000 spent on something, they go, oh, that's an awful lot to yeah. spend on them. And uh, it's difficult, isn't it? Because it's not really quantifiable. No. So if for the financier, the bottom line, how much does it add to your business? But I think we know from the forces, we're lucky in the sense we're an insurance policy and therefore there's not a bottom line per se. So we've got to be training because you don't know what's coming next, the expected yeah. expected. So therefore we have to train. But we also know by doing so, it does mean someone who hasn't got much qualifications can do so much more than you would think because we've given him the training to embolden him, to take him to the next step. And you almost then give him the management skills that probably, if you did calculate it by pounds, trillion pence, is cheaper for mm. what you've tried to achieve over time. So I understand in business it's not easy to do, but I would say it is worth doing because I'm sure if someone stepped back and think, what did I give to that person mm. and how it's helped the business and how it's helped him as an or her as an individual feel better about themselves and in the company, mm. and they respect the company has given them this chance and opportunity, it builds in, in a sense, loyalty. Perhaps they don't go now for the next job for the higher pay run because they think, ah, oh, the company has given me something. So I think sometimes there's intangible benefits that uh, yeah. I would advocate, and I think we would as military, mm. that uh, almost try it, do it, yeah. even though it costs some, because I think one, you owe it to your people, but I think you'll find that it will enhance the bottom line. Yeah. Um, but I can't prove that, but I just inherently instinctively know that I think that's true. Yeah. And earlier on, we were talking about, um, I, I agree, I want to talk about two things. The, the, uh, the, the three things you're talking about, is it mission, you talk about team, and then self. self. I'd, I'd like you to expand on what you mean that and, and how it could be applied uh, into business. And then I'd love you to go back to your operational experience, you know, Belfast and then on to Special Forces. Uh, that would be lovely. So do you want to do the mission team self? Yeah. I think the mission, if you're military, you understand it. What's our mission? Go capture that hill. In business, what's your mission? What is it you want to achieve for that six months of that year? Now, there might be a vision that takes you out past your, into the future, maybe one, two, three, five years. So you know collectively what the organization is going and heading for. So we all know in our minds where that star is. The mission then directs you into a line that you're going to go working through. And everyone's clear about what, I have. so if you asked one of your people in your management, what do you think the mission of the company is or mission of your department, he should be able to say. Mm. But then you also say to him, okay, then that, this is what I want your objective, this is what I want you to achieve over time, but I'm not gonna tell you how to do it. So that allows him to start thinking, okay, I might, because some of us don't have all the brightest ideas, actually, probably don't, but I think collectively as a good leader, commander, you draw the, some of the best ideas, then use some of your, understanding and some of your experience to colour, that's good, but actually might not work this time, but maybe we'll lead to that, to bring collectively to then get it mm. and allow then people to have expression. But I do also agree that actually there's a time where you say, thanks, got all the ideas, now this is where we're going. Yeah. You can't then prevaricate all the time, you've got to decide. No, because I think another trait for a leader is you've got to be in some ways decisive, because otherwise if you don't have it, then you won't get your goal because it's always a Chinese parliament where we discuss and who's yeah. going to make the So you've got to be decisive. Uh, and it is very different. Um, the, uh, there are some, some of the best things that are taught in the military and, and reserve officers then take it with them into business work very well. But uh, on the opposite side of the coin, I always think about the hilarious story about the Duke of Wellington, where when he became prime minister, so he went from the military having been you know, the famous general and the winner of Waterloo, 
to becoming prime minister. And he wrote a note to a cousin of his and he said, very strange today. And I had my first cabinet meeting and I gave them their orders. And then the fella stayed on and wanted to discuss it. Can't believe it. <laughs> but, um, but I think we've changed. Oh, we I have. Think the oh, yeah. Changed. There's no Colonel Blimps anymore. No. And the fact that uh, just order the soldiers and they'll do it, they're all thinking soldiers. They've been there, done it. So you've got to, I think, build a trust with the soldiers and the management to actually accept that ideas will come in. But there is a time and a place where suddenly they've also got to understand that if at times we say we're going and we're going forward or whatever it is, then people fall into line and do so because there are times where you can't afford the time because if it's with the adversary or something on operations where you don't have always that luxury of time, then you've got to move out as a team, which is the second one we said about the mission, then is the team because it's the sum of all the parts. As an individual, you'll give one part, but if you can combine five of us together in a small five-man team or four-man team, that is collecting more than just times five. And therefore, if the people are thinking less about themselves but how the team operates, force multiplier. Yeah. Do that, and then of course you've got to look after yourself, but it's mm -hmm. third in line. Yeah. And I think, naturally, if that mission's going well, you understand it, you've got a team that works them through, you'll probably be looked after because just collectively you will, because the team would have looked after. So yeah. again, it's a recipe, I think, for success, not that I'm trying to advocate you don't uh, or have personal ambitions and others. Of course you do. And that's got to be recognised. The management, the leadership will recognise that. But it's for the collective good. Yeah. And time and again, the message comes out that, uh, and Richard Fanning was talking about this in his session, that sadly in America and Britain particularly, um, there's the sort of cult of the ego hero leader and we only saw the other day you know people are being paid huge sums of money and that they think this one person will make all the difference to the organization but it, it is always you know fine a good inspiring leader but you need a team and people who are willing to follow and it isn't just about the one person it, it's the team isn't it it is but it's interesting isn't it in that if you go back to school and the headmaster does color shape the school and you think, oh, don't worry, I've got big teams, good teams. But there is a time where actually the person can be either to the good or to the bad. And I think in the battalion, we've seen it where you've got a CEO who is exceptional and the whole battalion reflects that. But you also need then the management and the team below that to ensure that goes to success because yeah. it isn't just one person. No one should be indispensable. And I think if anyone, when you think yourself, you might be, you've probably crossed the line where you actually think your own importance is too important yeah. because you shouldn't be that you are indispensable because you should have a deputy or you should have your team commanders to do that you could step aside. And I think that's the art of delegation, yeah. that you could come away and the team should function. And Otherwise, too, you haven't, in a sense, set them up for success. You're right. And, and too few leaders that I come across, CEOs or managing directors, partners, really set up a number two, a second in command, someone who can take over from them and practice always, almost, if I'm not here, right, you, you run it for today and let's see how it goes. Yeah. Whereas that was something we always had to do. We always did every exercise. Someone was taken, the commander would be taken out and everybody would practice going one level up, wouldn't they? We did. But if we're also honest with ourselves, the British Army don't really do deputies, not at battalion level or that. No, because the true. two I see is running and managing your battalion. That's he isn't yeah. following down, doing the up and out all the time. He can do and step in. And I knew um, also when you see multinationality, often they do. To be a deputy is quite a hard position to be in because you're not the commander, but you're not the chief of staff where you've got all your, your fingers on the pulse. So I think it takes a special... Well, you've got to think it through as to what is the role of the deputy to ensure they feel empowered, but it doesn't then 
almost divide the staff because am I talking to the commander or am I talking to the deputy? So I think it's mm. really important, but you've got to think through the role of the deputy to make sure they've got a day-to-day, week-to-week feel about themselves because everyone you know, needs a purpose in life. But it is a point that actually you can trust them. So if you do step off or perhaps in operations, you don't come back, then there's some there that means the organisations fall down. So I agree, you, you need it, but it isn't almost as easy as it sounds because yeah. the person who is just waiting in the wings is probably a touch frustrated because he probably wants to be yeah. the person. A bit like Prince Charles. Yeah. Could be. Yeah. Uh, and it would be good to come on to later on um, your time as a, a, a general and things like Sandhurst and, and the Allied Rapid Reaction Corps and um, some of the operations there. But let's go back to your, your early days when you were a young second lieutenant and, you know, operations has been in your blood, but it started in, in Northern Ireland, didn't it? It did. And I was just uh, 19 years old and it was only a four month tour. But the training that we had prior to it in Germany that got you prepared, that even though you weren't that experienced, you felt confident that you had been given the training to ensure. And you can remember the days when you were going where they gave through everything at you. Mm. And it's almost like you're going Armageddon, like mm. war. But actually reality wasn't like that. That was everything condensed into a few days to make sure your mind could cope with the stress, the pressure. Mm. And therefore I think it's so important, whether it be business or in training, that you try and almost react, give the symptoms and the situation scenarios that could happen because then when it does happen, it's almost like a training event. Yeah. But it's real. I yeah. appreciate well, it. Uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger said, uh, no, Arnold Schwarzenegger, I think, um, who was it? Um, one of the American generals, Schwarzkopf, Norman Schwarzkopf, storming Norman Schwarzkopf yeah. uh, in one of the wars you were involved in. Um, he said, train hard, fight easy. Yep. And, and, you know, the, the preparation of someone before they're going to take something on to give them lots of uh, situations is important, I think, isn't it? Um, we all do it inherently almost to make sure that uh, we should prepare our soldiers and our units, whatever battalion, brigade or others, to be ready for what it's going to. And of course, you never will totally expect the unexpected. Nineteen Brigade line. in 2006. We were the seventh in line of the brigade going into, Northern, uh, into Basra. Yeah. So you would have thought it would be steady state, and we thought we were quite well worked up. It was a baptism of fire that rocked us. Really? Because in the first seven days, we had a SES operation where we were looking for the hostages, and it was the first operator to die in a house assault. Right. We then had other hostages, another incident, on the run, we then had the Royal Marine boat bomb, where they took out five of the Royal Marines through ball bearing bomb and through the waterway. And the headquarters were shocked because the pace of spinning 24-7 hadn't even been quite reflective in our training. And it was for us, it was a moment, right? We either step up to the plate or, and of course, had no choice. We stepped up. But it was a realisation for myself. And I thought we would we've got the brigade where it needs to be, that you can never almost be complacent to think you have got it because nature, war, operations, business has a way of catching you out, which means you've got to be flexible, agile, and on your foot thinking that don't think you've got it, but always waiting for it, but not worrying because you'll be worrying about too much, but just make sure that when it does happen, how do you react and how do you get your people going? And we managed to, but it, uh, I had an excellent chief of staff and the team who write, okay, this is, this is the new norm. Who is your chief of staff? Um, ben Hollister. Okay, I don't know about that. Yeah. But that was one of the harder tours we've done. And I think at the same, it was a particularly vicious campaign from the militia and others who wanted us out of Basra. 
We lost 28 soldiers, 135 wounded in the seven months. We had over 2,500 rockets, IDs and mortars against the brigade, and we had to go on the front foot. So we were out most nights with the brigade, battalion or company ops to tell the militia that we weren't being driven out. We'll leave Basra when we decide to leave Basra, not because you put us out. It, it was really important for the soldiers to feel that they, in a sense, were in command and not being driven. And therefore, as a commander, it's quite difficult because you don't know truly whether you're on the right track. You think inherently, you've got plans, you've got your campaign plan and others, but you hope that it is the track that takes mm. you to the future that's going to be a success and history will tell you, or is it into a siding? So you've got to have the confidence to do so, but you've always got that seed of doubt that is this right, because particularly with mm. soldiers and soldiers on the line and, mm. and people being injured, uh, that it isn't easy because you just don't know. And you'll find out later as to whether it was or what you could do. And you're reflecting on your decisions yeah, yeah. at the time. Um, and that's when I suppose the loneliness of command. And I wouldn't overplay that because there are always people you can turn to. But at some stage, you've got to hold that because you are putting people in harm's way. Yeah. Yeah. And and you, you talked about um, the loss of Special Forces troops there and Royal Marines. Uh, you've done a number of tours with the Special Forces. Do you want to talk a bit about, about that and, and what were the different tours? And yeah. I think the first one was I uh, when I got into Hereford, which I didn't do the first time. I failed selection. Let's tell people what Hereford is for the Yeah, for so the it was the selection to get into 2-2-SAS. And it's a quite a rigorous selection. And I got through the, the physical phase, got through to the officer's week, where they really test your intellect over a series of days by appreciation where you're tired. And it's making sure, can you think on your feet? Have you got the agility, the mental intellect to take it under pressure? And I got through to the end of that uh, for my first time and said, thanks, but no thanks, come back in a year. And I was rocked. So I went away for actually two and a half years and then came back and chose to see the second time. Just stay with that for a moment because you know, you'd set your heart on it. You'd worked for Delabilia. You'd been his ADC. He was the ultimate SAS hero. And you put everything into that and you went for it and didn't get it the first time round. I mean, I know uh, I didn't get promoted to Lieutenant Colonel and uh, on, I think, two or three occasions. And then I sort of got the message and, and became a civilian and I'm very pleased I did. Um, but you know, how did you take that disappointment, that setback? It was hard initially because I hadn't anticipated, not that I thought I'd get through, but you're so driven to get through the next stage, next stage, next stage, and through to the end of the week, and then they said, no. Oh. But they said, come back in a year, so the door was still open. So I couldn't not go back. I had to. I couldn't go through knowing that I should not. It just wouldn't be in my nature not to try. Even if I failed at the second time, well, then you almost put it to bed. That's not. But you know that the opening was there. And therefore, mentally, you just had to readjust. And it's good for you to have a few knocks in life. If everything goes your way, then when you do have a knock, often those people sometimes find it really difficult to cope because they've never had some of the knocks. And I appreciate that. People have far more knocks than I've had. But it... It is good, I think, for your soul and for your thinking that sometimes life doesn't go your way. And, you and, then got and I think I met you when, when you were preparing really hard yeah. for going back again. And uh, you'd really set your sights on it. And, and how did you sort of pick yourself back up and go, look, this time I'm going to make sure I'm ready in every sense? Well, in some say, the, the advice I was given is just relax. I was like a little whirling dervish. I hadn't really necessarily contemplated truly what it is. So just almost mature, <laughs> slow down. So then at the physical side, it was fine because I got my plans and it got the first time. But it was almost offices where they want to work out, have you got the intellect? Can you think strategically? Can you go down to the tactical? Can you lead soldiers who don't want you and don't need you out front? They're already there. 
That's, that's the, an interesting. Yeah, that's idea. the beauty of it, in that the soldiers are good professional soldiers who want to go on operations. Don't think you're going to be out front leading them. Because, for instance, when these guys, they drop down or they revert to trooper, private. Yeah. So one of my lance corporals was a ex-colossant instructor from Santos, who are the cream. About five level ups, yeah. So that's the caliber of the people. So you say something once and it's done. If not, they've already done it. Yeah. So therefore, it's not for your brawn. You're not trying to be the best sniper, but you are trying to add value at the strategic level, yeah. operational level, because that's your worth. Yeah. And therefore, it's a different set of command. And if you don't get it right, you don't command. And fortuitously, or not, uh, we went out on the first Gulf War and we went behind the... And you were a troop commander there. Troop you? commander, uh, behind the Iraqi lines, looking for the scuds that Saddam was trying to put across into the uh, Middle East. And did you find it? We did, actually. Yeah. Um, <laughs> through fortune, that was because we, uh, we heard that it were being pushed... Uh, North to get them out of our range because they realised what we were about. Um, but actually, how are you getting around on Land Rover? Or yeah, so it was the almost archetypal vehicle that you look back to the Second World. The Pink Panther, the Pinkies. Oh, really? Yeah, who are coloured pink because the desert sand out there is is pink. And this colour. is boys' own hero stuff, isn't it? Well, it's interesting in that uh, you do think one, it's real because you're again, it's soldiers' lives on part, and you're on operations, but also back almost to the calibre of the people you're with, you're confident in the people you're with because there's a team that is cohesive and it wants to do operations. Because were you there at the same time as Dave Hudson? Yes, but not uh, not in the same, so we had uh, four of us, David Wood, myself, oh, David uh, Wood, Julian, yeah. Julian Clover and Ed Butner, oh, four right, of us together. Yes, um, gosh, I remember the whole game. Yeah. And 34 days, so it wasn't as if in internal time, but 34 days out in the in the desert. And for me, that was formative because, again, it just sharpened as to how do you operate with special forces and what is the value that the officer brings. And also, it's your, your in a sense, your learning as well and development for when you come back as a squadron commander or when you come back there because it's all a journey. Yeah, um, but it was fascinating. I think in a sense formative because that then that was my first year and then I had another three years as a troop commander. So I think it was lucky for me and I got that early because you then you earned, or not, but you earned your respect to that be the true commander as you're coming through. And what are the, the learnings that you can take from that, that, you know, as a leader, that you then took on throughout your career and you went to be commandant at Santos and you were the commander of the ARC? What would you pass on to others from, from your learning from that time? In part, a little bit more of the alternative thinking because just the stage steady doesn't kind of cut the mustard uh, particularly when you're having sometimes to do all the strategic. So where is your mind? What is it that you really are putting a level where you're putting these troops out on operations that isn't just for a tactical result? Hmm. It's something what the country needs almost at the national level. So are you thinking that way? Because you might be dealing with ambassadors one day. Next day, you might be out on ops, but you'll put a level where what is it the country needs? Why have they got their special source involved? And are you then fulfilling that aim of what the country requires of it. Mm. But also, so it's an alternative thinking, making sure you, you don't box yourself in too high. The level of training and be a little imaginative in your training. And it doesn't mean you have to have lots of money, lots of ammunition mm. others, but so even when I was back then with the battalion as a company commander, for instance, we had... Very, so back with your own battalion? Yes. So I was... So it's because you were in the light infantry, were you? Back with Italian Cyprus. And we had very little um, ammunition. But designed an exercise with escape innovation, OP exercise out with enemy coming through, and I think we maybe had 10 rounds a man. But the exercise was such that there was an edge to it 
that the soldiers didn't mind, they didn't have the 10 rounds. It was where, where they were the dogs, the helicopters and others. It felt real. And therefore, you're just trying to give an emphasis of what is the reality of how you train to make sure they feel this is real. This isn't just going through the motions. It is that they can think, ah, there's an itch to this. I am going to be professional. I am going to make sure of it because I need to. So it's just instilling them in them the worth of training and getting that operational edge. And I'm always thinking, well, they're thinking, this could be it. So is it... Okay almost enacting what you might feel for real, then people do take seriously. And I think you do learn, good and bad. Yeah. Now, you talk about training there in Cyprus with your company. Uh, years later, as a, as a two-star major general, um, you were the commandant at Sandhurst. And you know, that's the, the hub, the heart of some of the world's best leadership development. What, what would you pass on to people who are not in the army about sort of the best tips and advice you'd give about, about leadership from your time there? Because you, you, know, you really studied it and looked at it from different yeah. angles. Well, it's interesting in that if you had asked us from business as to what qualifications and level of perhaps schooling did the officers require, you'd probably be quite shocked at how low it might be. But that's because we didn't necessarily set the bar as an academic qualification. But what we were looking at, we call it the 10 dimensions. And I think this is applicable to business. So I'll just give you a couple. It says here, command communication, professional competence, effective intelligence, leadership, core values, impact, reaction to stress. That is what we tested, both at the officer RCB, which is the you know, officer test to get in. The regular commissions board. Yes, yeah. and then also the same at Santos. That is what the test was. Or oh, sorry, that's what the results where you are comparing and making notes and comparing whether they should move on, should they continue where they're on the course. So it wasn't just calls. Academic, of course, has a part to play. It does, because that's intellect, stretch of your mind. But it's not the sole part. Then, a lot of it then has a balance between the academic study to make sure you empower and learn for the education, but then you turn that into training and exercising. So you've educated, you then tested on training, and then you go out and do it for real on exercise. And I'm sure you can convert that into business in, in that they give them the tools you then put them through scenarios to make sure they understand what they're trying to do. And then at times you're going to have to test that. You're going to have to put them out and it's for real. For them, it might be a business and the bottom line and sales. But for us, it was being ready for operations. But also core to this or key to this was having your training instructors who are of the highest caliber. Yeah. Because when you are putting people through their paces, they've got to respect the people who are teaching them because then they think, ah, oh, I'll absorb. Now, you've got, and we were dealing with some very bright people, and the team and the instructors found it difficult at times because they'll be questioning. Back in the army, you don't question, but there you've got a color sergeant who's at the top of his game and being questioned by a 24-hour graduate, well, why? Uh, do we really agree about this? And, and it is good for them because they think, oh, I better understand truly why I'm doing this. And they then started, like, well, okay, let me tell you. But they also knew, yeah, I hear that now. Should we just get on? <laughs> so, so it worked both ways, but they learned both sides. One, the graduate, you can ask at times, but others, just do it. Yeah. But the colorsant and the instructor trainers, well, understand why, because perhaps if you haven't put it across well enough to them truly, because those cadets are then going to teach those points later to their teams. So they've yeah. got to understand it. Yeah. So then it was back again, and you know the motto of Santos, serve to lead. Three very simple words. But I do think truly as the core, if you in your mentality, you are going to serve your soldiers, you are going to help your soldiers, you're going to look after soldiers, it's where, you will then lead and they will follow you. Yeah. Hopefully not out of curiosity, yeah. but more is because they're willing, and I did a bit touch dramatic here, but to put down their lives, 
queen country themselves, you, your, your muckers, because that's what we expect. That's what happened for you. People, people yeah. died for you because you led them and they believed in you. Yeah, I mean, it might be a touch strong because it might not mean personally, but yes, for the mission, for what yeah. it is. But but you're right. You're in a place, position where, but people do on operations, unfortunately, get yeah. injured and don't come home. And yeah. that is a sobering point that this is real. Yeah. And therefore, you've got to truly understand. Leadership it. really is so important. It's not. It's not a. You know. It's not an afterthought. No. Oh, gonna, this year we'll cut leadership. We won't bother with leadership. We'll make a cut back on leadership. But, you know, it's always going to be important in any business. And I think people, okay, the armed forces, people will die. Very rarely does that happen in business unless it's a health and safety issue, let's say, on an oil rig or something like that. But, but many of the leaders I'm with, it's unlikely that anybody's going to get injured or die. But I think, and that's true, but because we're in, let's say, the forces, but... They've got pressures almost equal, but in other fives. Yeah. The financing, the bottom line, will they go into liquidation? Will they lose all the jobs, the people who they've now managed and led? So I wouldn't decry the pressures they're under could be equal, if not more, than what we then say yeah. in the military, because they've, they've still got people, tens, hundreds, thousands of people they're looking after, and that is a pressure in itself. And yeah. they've got to look after, as we would, because that's them. that's their livelihood. Yeah. So it doesn't necessarily have to be a, a no, threat. No, you're quite but right. I, so therefore, I would I would say this is why it's comparable. Yeah. And I don't think we're special in the sense of that. No. It's just that ours is in that line. But business is hard. It's tough. Yeah. So we could talk for hours. Yeah. Um, but in your fi- in your final few moments, what would you like to leave people with? If there's a couple of things you want to cover and, and pass over to those listening to the podcast around the world, what, what would you want to pass over? A couple of things I would. I've got... Um, five guiding principles that I've used, and, and this won't be just me, I'm sure yeah. it, it yeah. was given to me, but and I, I mentioned two on the podcast. One is lead by example, because they, as we said before, set the bar high, lead by example, be fair, consistent, you can be as robust as you need, but people understand that's where you stand. Mm-hmm. That's and good. therefore, if you walk the walk, people will do similarly because they say, okay, if that's what, if it's good for him and he'll do it, I'll do it. Yeah. Set it low and then expect people to do it there's no respect. No, you're and you want respect and not popularity. Great if you have both, yeah. but respect is key. Yeah. Popularity is a is not the game we should no. go. The second one, as we said before, is don't expect your subordinates to do anything you wouldn't do. You can't do everything. Yeah. But they know in their minds when you put them out, and it might be against the adversary, he would do that. Yeah. Or he would have been there. Or I have seen him. And for instance, you might go out and patrol. You might do top cover. So they see you're out there. No, you're not doing it every day. You can't because, let's say, as a brigade commander, you don't have that time. But you have done it. So the word gets out that you are willing to put yourself out. Yeah. So that's really important. The other one is, difficult word to say, downward looker. Don't be an upward looker. And it's like the, the saying they say is, don't be the baboon on the palm tree. <laughs> if you're above the baboon, all you see is his smile. <laughs> if you're below the baboon, all you see is his ass. And yeah. we know both types. So I would say... Baboon look, on the palm tree, I love that. So look, no, and I don't mean look down, look after those who you are managing and leading, they will look after you. You will then don't need to look up. I mean, of course, you look up, context, set your thing, but, but you're not chasing your yeah. boss and senior about how Too you please do. him. Too many do. You're looking down to ensure the organisation is right. If you've got a good organisation, you'll shine because the organisation will yes. do it for you. That's and right I think that's just a subtle thing. Yeah. You can do that. You come in strength. Be decisive. Now, that doesn't mean impulsive or others, but you've got to make decisions. Because otherwise, you get to a point where you're getting all this in there and you're never going to have 100% of information. Yeah. Not in business, not in ours. So at some stage, you've got to calculate 
is that enough information to make a decision? Yeah. And hopefully it could be at a risk, but it's calculated. It's not a gamble, which is, I haven't calculated, I haven't, I'm off. But at times be decisive because Good. particularly when you're in a pressure in business, I'm sure, certainly in operations, people turn in and they want a decision. Left or right, forward it, make a decision. That's what you expected. That's what you're paid for. That's why you're the, the commander. Yeah. Make a decision, right or wrong. And no doubt they'll debate it to the nth degree afterwards, but you made the call. Yeah. Okay, and cool. people will, will follow you because you've made the call. And then the last one is empower your people. If you can empower your people, whether it be mission command, delegation, give them the confidence, give them the tools, you'll be amazed, as we've all seen, how much they can do more than they, can, they themselves know, and you've let them. With that, though, comes the downside that if they fail or they make a mistake, you take it. You can't have it both ways. You can't delegate and give more things, and then they make a mistake, and so you then crush them. Or you say, oh, back off, that's not me, and let the boss take... You made them the fall guy. They won't trust you. They won't do it again. Yeah. So you've got to, as I think, commander, accept that if you do give people that and you do give them that part, at times you're going to have to take it. Yeah. But the good idea is when they do realize, you don't take it. No. It's quite hard, though. So you've got to give the yeah. well, give credit to the person who's done it. But when it goes bad, you take it. And it's not always easy that way. And I don't say, I always uh, preach that, so do so. that. No, no, um, no. But you can see then the recipe is you're cultivating a command ethos that people want to do more and yeah. will do it more because they trust again that you'll hold them. But the person only makes the mistake, same mistake once. Not twice, not three times, because then that isn't learning. That's They haven't learned. Yeah. So that's when you do and we're quite robust. That doesn't work. Why did you do it the second time? What have you done? And that's where maybe you've given too much. Yep. So you look to yourself. Why was that the position? But conversely, that person knows that wasn't the standard. That wasn't what we wanted. What was what went wrong? And that way then it, it holds through. Brilliant. So that was my top tips. I Good. And, and Tim, before you head off, you're, you, you've come over and I've caught you just as you've landed on your flight um, from the Middle East. Tell us just very briefly in the last minute, you know, what is it you're doing now? You've been out of the army for three years. Give, give us a bit of a flavor. So I went into consultancy and then I was asked um, by um, Headhunter, would I help the Saudi Arabian government? And this is to help build their national risk unit, which is basically trying to ensure that they've got the risk assessment, critical assessment, contingency planning, the mechanisms and structure to ensure they can now work through, which they've got plans in place, but are they now holistically across all the ministries and entities to be brought together, a bit like in the UK, the Civil Contingency Secretariat, and they also want a disaster management centre to ensure that when they do have an emergency or whatever, there is a cross-collaboration across entities and ministries that can bring together that timely, accurate information can be given to the commander, whoever it is, to make the right call on the right day to get after the emergency and then ideally recover quickly to get mm. back on where it is. And that's resilience. Okay. So it's a fascinating insight. And I've um, been there now 14 months, a fascinating country in Saudi Arabia, the uh, really hospi hospitable and uh, just moving this forward, I hope, to increase their resilience over time. Uh, and if I can do that for, for Saudi Arabia, then I've, I've done my little bit, my part. Yeah, well, that's great. Well, they made the right call in hiring you. I'm certain of that. Tim, it's truly inspiring. Very grateful that you've made the time just as you land, come and talk to us. And uh, good luck with having a little bit of a break. And uh, and thank you for sharing your wisdom on inspiring leadership. My really, pleasure. Really good. John, very good to see you. Thanks. So now you've heard from one of the inspiring leaders that I've interviewed, what are you going to do next? If you want to get some more free material, go to my website, jonathanperks.com, 
or follow me on LinkedIn, Jonathan Bowman Perks. And there you can get access to my books, uh, Inspiring Leadership and Top Tips for Inspiring Leaders. But if you want to actually do something about being a leader and constantly improving your game, raising your performance, get in touch with me about coaching you or one of your team that you want to raise the game for them. It's got to be people who want to be good to great, not people who you're trying to fire. And if you're looking for a motivational speaker, get in touch. Or if you want me to work with your team coach, I would be delighted to help you.